and welcome to episode 12 of City Breaks London, Victoria and Albert's London. I'm Marion Jones and I run City Breaks. Welcome back if you've been with us for a while and a special welcome if this is one of your first City Breaks episodes. If it is, you might be wondering what it actually is going to be. Well, we're touring London at the moment. We're mid-series or so, episode 12 out of, ooh, 20-something. And on each episode, we're looking at a particular aspect, usually somewhere you might like to visit. In the case of this episode, a whole clutch of places you might like to visit and offering you a little bit of history and culture from behind the scenes. All the stuff that you'd research for yourself if only you had the time. You might be listening to inform a future visit. You might be reminiscing. You might just be generally interested in snippets of history and culture relating, in this case, to London. Anyway, enough. Let's get on with the main business. We're going to look today at two people who had perhaps the biggest impact of anybody on their corner of London, Queen Victoria and her husband, Prince Albert. In this episode, I'm going to tell their story very briefly, and then we'll be visiting a whole clutch of places with which they were very connected. So Kensington Palace, where Queen Victoria was born and grew up, the museums that Albert founded, the most famous museums in London, really, the V&A, the Natural History Museum and the Science Museum. And of course, of course, we must go along to the Royal Albert Hall, named after you-know-who, and the Albert Memorial. So then, I think there's only one place to start, and that is with Queen Victoria herself. So she was born in 1819 at Kensington Palace to parents Edward, Duke of Kent, who was actually the fourth son of George III, and his wife, Victoria of Saxe-Coburg. You might be wondering why the daughter of a fourth son ever became queen, and that's quite an interesting and convoluted story. So, George III had an oldest son, also called George, and he had a daughter, Princess Charlotte. And it was the sad fact that she died in childbirth in 1817, which led directly to Victoria becoming next in line. But the story behind that is much longer and juicier, dare I say. Okay, so I read up about this in a book on Queen Victoria, written by Elizabeth Longford, and I very much enjoyed the sentence about King George III at the point when he was ailing and people were beginning to wonder about the succession, where she wrote the following. Of his 15 children, 12 ageing princes and princesses still remained. All five princesses were spinsters or childless. The seven princes could not boast between them a single offspring who was not either a bastard or otherwise debarred from the throne. And then Elizabeth Longford goes on to explain that the four unmarried sons were hurriedly dispatched to go and get married, which they mainly did, as she put it, to minor German princesses. And then, as she goes on to say, the great matrimonial marathon of the four royal dukes was singularly meagre in its results, by which she means they didn't produce very many children. It's a sad story, really, because there were quite a lot of stillbirths, children who died in infancy, and all of this despite the fact, as she puts it, that William, Duke of Cambridge, had, quote, ten lusty, illegitimate children. So, to cut a long story short, there weren't many contenders, and when poor Princess Charlotte died, Victoria became the next in line. I'm going to try, if it's possible, to sum up her 60-year-plus reign in, all three or four sentences, and then we can get on to some of the anecdotes linked to Kensington Palace. Okay then, so born at Kensington Palace, and she lived there until the age of 18 when she became queen, at which point she moved to Buckingham Palace. 
Very early in her reign, she married her German cousin, Prince Albert, and for the purposes of this episode, the blockbuster event in their entire marriage was in 1851, when Albert masterminded something called the Great Exhibition. Much more about that in a minute, but the reason it's important is because it was a huge success and he spent the money it made on founding the museums that we're going to be talking about later. But the main fact that everybody knows about poor Prince Albert is that he died very young, he was only 42, and that Victoria then went on to live through 40 years plus of widowhood. So hopefully that sets the scene. Let's go back and look at one or two little incidents and stories which will put some colour on the picture. Queen Victoria grew up then in Kensington Palace as quite a lonely child. She did have a much older stepbrother and sister, but her father died when she was a baby, and so she was brought up by her mother, the Duchess of Kent. With a lot of help, some would say interference, from one Sir John Conroy, who was her mother's adviser. It's quite fortunate that from the age of about 11 or 12, Victoria began to write a diary, and so from that we can get a lot of information about what her life was like. As a young child, it consisted really of lessons and music and riding ponies, visits to the opera or the theatre for a treat. So a long series of teachers were brought in to see to her education, and we get the picture that she wasn't the best of pupils, really. She wasn't a totally academic child. Her Latin teacher, for example, was once heard to comment that, quote, we are not far advanced. She liked music, but she was quite willful about it. Apparently one day when she was told to practice, as the teacher put it, like everybody else, she banged down the piano lid and said, there is no must about it. We know that she had a big collection of dolls, which she enjoyed dressing. Lots of them had costumes made for them, so they would be characters from the operas she'd enjoyed. She had one of Elizabeth I, etc, etc. Possibly what she loved above all else was her pet dog, Dash, a King Charles Spaniel. We know, again from the diaries, that she used to enjoy dressing him up in clothes. He had, for example, a scarlet jacket and some blue trousers, rather natty. She bought him Christmas presents every year, a rubber ball or a little morsel of gingerbread. And famously, on the day that she was crowned, when she was 18, she came home from the long tiring day at Westminster Abbey and rushed straight upstairs to give Dash his bath. And here then is an extract from her diary written on the 24th of December in 1832, so when she was 12, about Christmas Eve. She describes the two large round tables which had trees on them, hung with lights and sugar ornaments, and presents placed all around underneath. She writes, Mamma gave me a lovely pink bag which she'd worked with a little sachet, likewise done by her. A beautiful little opal brooch and earrings, books, some lovely prints, a pink satin dress and a cloak lined with fur. Aunt Sophia gave me a dress which she'd worked herself and Aunt Mary a pair of amethyst earrings, Leitzen, that was her governess, a lovely music book and Sir John a silver brush. Mamma then took me up into my bedroom with all the ladies. There was my new toilet table with a white muslin cover over pink and all my silver things standing on it with a fine new looking glass. I stayed up until half past nine. She wasn't, however, a totally happy child, quite lonely, and a strict eye kept on her by her mother and Sir John Conroy, who devised something called the Kensington System, which is a whole set of rules about what she couldn't do. She wasn't allowed, for example, to walk downstairs by herself. She had to hold someone's hand. 
and she slept in her mother's bedroom every single night until the day she became queen, when she opted straight away to move out. In her teenage years, there's quite a sinister-sounding scene when Sir John Conroy took a moment when she was ill and therefore weak and perhaps easy to convince to try and make her sign a piece of paper which would make him her private secretary and she became queen. In fact, she utterly refused to sign and was very proud of herself afterwards, writing in her diary that I resisted in spite of my illness. And her first Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, later said that he thought this was a very good thing. The words he used, in fact, were, what a blessing. It was at the age of about 11, in Kensington Palace, during a history lesson, that Victoria discovered that she was, in fact, going to be Queen. Her governess had left a family tree for her to study, so she could work it out for herself. And her comment at the time, apparently, was, I am nearer to the throne than I thought, followed by the statement, I will be good, which has been much quoted ever since. On June 20th, 1837, she was writing about the moment she discovered she actually had become Queen. Quote, I was awoke at six o'clock by Mamma, who told me that the Archbishop of Canterbury and Lord Conningham were here and they wished to see me. I got out of bed and went into my sitting room, only in my dressing gown, and saw them. Lord Conningham, the Lord Chamberlain, then acquainted me that my poor uncle, the King, was no more and had expired at twelve minutes past two this morning, and consequently that I am Queen. We know that she held her first Privy Council meeting in the Red Saloon at Kensington Palace later that day. She wore a plain black silk dress. That was a mourning dress, of course, because her uncle had died. I like to imagine her in that room, surrounded by a dense crowd of older and more experienced men, all summoned for the occasion to hear what she was going to say. Lord Melbourne, her first Prime Minister, had written a speech for her to read, promising that she would do her duty. So she read that, and then she offered her hand for the councillors to kiss, and signed her first official document in a shaky hand, Victoria R. People who were present commented afterwards at her self-possession and said how composed she was. And practically the very next thing she did was to tell her mother that things about here were going to change. So, for example, she was going to move into her own bedroom. Her mother wasn't very happy with this show of independence, and Victoria reported this afterwards to Lord Melbourne. I was obliged to remind her who I was, she said, to which he apparently replied, quite right. Another day, very much worth recounting, occurred in May 1836, the arrival of the Coburg cousins, as they were known, Prince Ernst and Prince Albert, on a visit to Kensington Palace. That was their first meeting, and Victoria recorded in her diary how much she liked him. He is extremely handsome, she wrote. His hair is about the same as mine, his eyes large and blue, and he has a beautiful nose and a very sweet mouth with fine teeth. Three years later, he was back for another visit. Actually, this one took place in Windsor. But anyway, she proposed to him. It had to be that way round because of her status. A well-rinned romance followed. He went back briefly to Germany, lots of letters and gifts kept arriving, and eventually, in February 1840, they were married in the Chapel Royal at St James's Palace. Victoria, we are told, wore a simple court dress of silk, trimmed with lace from Honiton in Devon, and she wrote in her diary at the end of the day, This was the happiest day of my life. So they had a long, happy, very productive marriage, nine children, 
no longer at Kensington Palace. They lived at Buckingham Palace and spent a lot of time at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. Until the dreadful day, the 14th of December, 1861, when Prince Albert, who was only 42, died of typhoid fever. My life as a happy one is ended, she wrote. And there followed, as you probably know, a long, long period of deepest mourning. She wore entirely black. Everyone at court wore only black for a whole year after his death. And the Queen herself went into seclusion, which continued into the 1870s. And I think it's fair to say that she never, ever got over losing him. So it's certainly true to say that if you visit Kensington Palace, the association with Queen Victoria is possibly the most famous one. But that's not to say that it's not associated with other royals as well. It was first lived in, for example, from 1689, by William and Mary, who had arrived in London from Holland to take over the crown. The shell of the building was there already, known as Nottingham House, but they set about a major refurbishment, and they're responsible for much of the way that the palace looks, even today. If you go to visit, you might like to wander around remembering that they made it quite the party palace. They were newly arrived in England. They had to establish their role as monarchs and they immediately set about inviting the great and the good to come and be impressed at Kensington Palace. Think of this as you wander around. Saturday night last was a great entertainment made for the Prince of Baden at Kensington where was dancing and gaming and a great supper and banquets of sweetmeats. There could not be less than a thousand persons, but it was five o'clock in the morning before some of them could get home. Alas, the revelry only lasted a few years, because in 1694, so five years later, Queen Mary died of smallpox, and William no longer felt like partying. When he died, though, he was succeeded by Mary's sister Anne, so Queen Anne, who also lived here in the palace. Quite a sad life, she had 17 pregnancies, only one of which resulted in the child who lived, and he died at the age of 11. Queen Anne left her mark on the palace too, though. She loved the gardens. She it was who had the orangery built in 1704, and she used that to host parties, and also for a ceremony on Maundy Thursday, at which she used to distribute Maundy money. After her death, there was George I. Not much to say about him in terms of Kensington Palace, but the long reign of George II, 1727 to 1760, and his wife Caroline, is often seen as the heyday of social life at the palace. Lots of court ceremonies, stylish entertaining. So again, if you go to look round, picture this. A whole series of evening events at which the men wore wigs, powdered wigs, you understand, embroidered suits and silk stockings, and little court pumps with glittery buckles. The women weren't going to be outdone, so they shipped up in a tight bodice with the huge wide skirts and a long train, frilly sleeves, jewels, feathers in their hair, and they minced along with tiny steps because of the whalebone hoops, which supported their skirts but restricted their movements. Things quietened down very much under George III. He preferred Buckingham Palace, and in his reign, Kensington Palace then was seen as a lesser residence, somewhere where people like his sons, Prince Augustus and Edward Duke of Kent, Sir Victoria's father, made their homes. That's how she came to be born here, of course. So, if you go on a visit, what can you expect? Well, there are various tours on offer. One of the King's State Apartments, so the King in question was William, for he it was who had them designed. And what you'll find, according to the guidebook, is a sumptuous set of rooms, each grander than the last, leading right to the heart of the court. 
So there's the king's staircase. There's a presence chamber where you could be in his presence. So that had a throne under a crimson silk canopy, etc., etc. And then separately, the Queen's State Apartments. So designed for Queen Mary, his wife. She has her own staircase, slightly less flash than his black marble affair. She has a gallery and a closet, an eating room, a drawing room. And when you look round, you need to picture it filled with her ladies-in-waiting who were doing their embroidery and surrounded by china and porcelain. She collected that. And the author Daniel Defoe, after a visit, wrote about it as follows. The Queen filled her rooms with chinaware, piled upon the tops of cabinets and every chimney-piece to the tops of the ceilings. So, clutter, basically. And there were also bird cages dotted about, upholstered, apparently, in red velvet. Another tour you can go on is called the Victoria Revealed Tour, where you'll see the stone staircase where she met Albert for the very first time in 1836, and you can see the Red Saloon where she held that first Privy Council meeting. There are lots of things on exhibit. There are toys and dolls, lots of family photographs. So you get a real sense of what the palace was like when she was growing up there. Before moving on to the other places to visit in the area, I think it's a good moment to mention Prince Albert a little bit in his own right. Let's give him his full name. Francis Albert Augustus Charles Emmanuel, Prince of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. He was three months younger than Queen Victoria, and they were both twenty when they got married. At which point, of course, he became HRH Prince Albert. We can definitely say that he found being the Queen's consort slightly tricky in certain ways. Your average Victorian husband did not play second fiddle to his wife. Albert himself put it like this. I am very happy and contented, but the difficulty in filling my place with a proper dignity is that I am only the husband and not the master in the house. But he was a very capable, clever man, and he reformed the palace in very many ways. He took on sorting out the household, which was a bit of a mess when he moved in, They had nine children, of whom he was very fond. In fact, it's often said that he was better at enjoying their company and playing with them than Victoria was. And the thing for which he became best known was known as the Great Exhibition, which he thought of and masterminded and organised to a great success. The idea was to stage an international trade show in London to showcase new ideas from around the world in the arts, in industry, in science. A huge crystal palace was set up in Hyde Park, wrought iron and glass structure, which 200 workers worked flat out on so that it was finished in four months. And on the 1st of May, 1851, it opened to great excitement. There's a description in a publication called Gentleman's Magazine about Queen Victoria's visit to the Great Exhibition to open it. Here's a little flavour of that. At length, a flourish of trumpets announced the Queen's arrival at the north door of the building, and Her Majesty and her royal consort, leading by the hand the Prince of Wales and the Princess Royal, appeared before the vast assemblage of her subjects, and the crystal bow rang with enthusiastic shouts, overpowering the sound of the cannon discharged on the other side of the serpentine. It was a moment of intense excitement. And, of course, the national anthem had to be sung, by a choir of a thousand voices, and Queen Victoria walked through the building. Quote, Her Majesty passed along. The cheers were taken up in succession by the whole of the long array and seconded with waving of hats and handkerchiefs from the galleries. 
So there's more and more of this. Looking round, the procession finally gets to the other end. The national anthem is played again. And, quote, the brilliant train having at length made the complete circuit of the building, Her Majesty again ascended the throne and pronounced the exhibition open. And it was a magnificent success. Six million visitors, thousands of exhibits. They included, for example, the Kohinoor diamond and a nice little list from the Rough Guide, quote, an Indian ivory throne, a floating church from Philadelphia, a bed which awoke its occupant by ejecting him into a cold bath, false teeth designed not to be displaced when yawning, a fountain running with eau de cologne, dot, dot, dot. So you get the picture. All sorts of new and marvellous things. It was a massive success. Victoria said she was very proud. In fact, she said, Albert's dear name is immortalised with this great conception. But actually, from a historical point of view, even more important was its legacy. A lot of money was made, and Albert, ever the pragmatist, decided it should be invested in more permanent facilities so that the arts and technology could be celebrated and encouraged in London for generations to come. And so it was. Land was bought, a selection of museums were planned, and the whole area at the time became known as Albertopolis because his stamp was on everything. And so now let's go on a little tour of some of these buildings, the three great museums, the Royal Albert Hall, and, to finish, the Albert Memorial. It turned the whole area into a crucible for world-leading research, not just because of those institutions, but because of other nearby places, ones that you can't visit so much, the Royal College of Music, the Royal Geographical Society, Imperial College, and so on. And the commission which set all this up still exists today, and still funds many research fellowships. So then, where to first? How about the V&A, as it's affectionately known, the Victoria and Albert Museum? So the world's largest museum for applied and decorative arts, whose first director, one Henry Cole, declared that it should be, quote, a schoolroom for everyone. Its mission, he said, was to improve the standards of British industry by educating designers and manufacturers and the general public about art and science. It's an absolutely overwhelming place to visit. If it's really your thing, you're going to have to make several visits, I think. Twelve and a half acres, 145 galleries, seven miles of corridor, 5,000 years of art. You get the picture. Collections, among other things, of ceramics and glass, textiles, silver, jewellery, furniture, medieval objects, prints, drawings, photographs. How to convey the idea in a few sentences? Well, when I went on to the online collection, I saw a nice variety of things. There's a section on hats, for example. There's the Glastonbury Festival archive. And to give you a picture, I dive just a little deeper into two collections. The manuscripts, which range from the Middle Ages to the present day. So there are illuminated manuscripts, calligraphy, literary manuscripts, recipe books. Again, a massive list of different things, and the highlights are said to include five notebooks, which belong to Leonardo da Vinci, the original manuscripts for most of Charles Dickens' novels, and among the medieval texts, a missal from the 14th century from the Abbey of Saint-Denis in Paris. To pick another category more or less at random, shoes. So, more than 2,000 pairs, 3,000 years of history, a few examples, Egyptian footwear, from 1550 BC, some hemp shoes from the Silk Road, some Roman sandals, 
patterns from the 14th century, the very first Wellington boots from 1817, something about the momentous year of 1830, when some genius decided that you should have different shaped shoes for the right foot and the left foot. There's a Clark's Desert boot from 1950, a stiletto heel from 1955, and so on and so on. If you go, I absolutely suggest that you have a look first online, decide which areas you most want to see, and make straight for those. Not to be outdone then, the Natural History Museum, equally magnificent in its scope, 80 million items, covering all the earth and life sciences you can think of. We know it largely as a museum, but of course it's also a research centre and does a lot of work in conservation. So again, how to summarise? Well, let me just list a few of the best-known exhibits. So the most famous of all isn't actually there anymore. That was Dippy, the famous replica of a dinosaur skeleton, which was sent to us as a present from America. Thank you, Andrew Carnegie. He sent 36 different crates to London with all the pieces in them, Somebody clever put them all back together and it was unveiled in 1905 and became the most popular exhibit in the entire museum. But after 112 years on display, it was replaced by the actual skeleton of a young blue whale, 82 feet in length, 4.5 tonnes in weight. The top 12 exhibits are listed on the website, so highlights from that, Guy the Gorilla, London Zoo's much-loved former resident, who the website informs me, stands proudly at the right-hand entrance of the Treasures Gallery. There's also the world's largest concentration of Darwin's works, including, wait for it, 478 editions of On the Origin of the Species, in 38 languages, including Braille. There's a Barbary lion skull from a lion who lived in the Tower of London about 700 years ago. There's some moon rock collected by NASA astronauts from the USA's Apollo moon missions. After the final mission, President Nixon gave fragments of it as goodwill gestures to 135 countries, including the UK. And then there's the Science Museum, which will show us, quote, scientific, technological and medical achievements from across the entire globe. It is in fact the most visited science and technology museum anywhere in Europe. I think that's because it's very interactive. There's lots to do and play with in all sorts of areas, technology, medicine, chemistry, computing, robots, you name it, they've got it. Okay, so a few highlights. The Apollo 10 command capsule, Stevenson's rocket, the oldest surviving steam locomotive, known as Puffing Billy, the first ever jet engine, Helen Sharman's space suit, the clock from Wells Cathedral, an amazingly clever contraption dating from 1390. All three of these museums, by the way, are free to get into, So I think the strategy really is pop in when you're passing, look at one section, leave before you're on overload and go back regularly. So also in this corner of London, the Royal Albert Hall. Queen Victoria herself laid the foundation stone in 1867. They had been going to call it something else, I think, but she decided to change the name to the Royal Albert Hall of Arts and Sciences in memory of her husband, of course. She was so overcome that she was unable to make her speech and her son, Prince Edward, had to do it for her. One of the first events to be held there was a concert by the Royal Choral Society, attended by the Queen, who enjoyed a performance of Handel's Messiah, a piece which, in fact, has been played every year since on Good Friday at the Hall. Not long after that, Richard Wagner came along and conducted the first half of eight concerts himself, 
in what was known as the Grand Wagner Festival. In the interval, he handed his baton over to another conductor, sat in a large armchair on the corner of the stage, and listened. The range of events that have been held at the Albert Hall is absolutely incredible. Sunday concerts at the beginning of the 20th century, very popular. People like Dame Nellie Melba used to come and sing. Suffragette meetings, a memorial concert after the sinking of the Titanic, which ended with the enormous orchestra playing the hymn, Nearer My God to Thee, which is what history tells us the ship's band were playing as it sank. Fundraising concerts in World War I and World War II, a marvellous thing called Lady Malcolm's Servant Balls in the 1930s, billed as, quote, an amazing opportunity for servants from all over the capital to have a night of dancing and socialising at reasonable cost. In the 60s, there were CND meetings, so the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. There was the world's first miniskirt ball, the Eurovision Song Contest, boxing matches featuring Muhammad Ali, and in November 1995, Professor Stephen Hawking became the second physicist ever to sell out the Royal Albert Hall, the first one having been Professor Albert Einstein, who was on his way through England in 1933 when fleeing from Germany, because he was Jewish. So, history everywhere, and I haven't even got to the most famous thing about the Royal Albert Hall, which is the proms, or better known as the BBC Sir Henry Wood Promenade Concerts, which began in 1895, not here then actually, but from 1941 onwards, after the original venue had been bombed, they did take place here. The first few had to end promptly at 9pm, so that the audience could get home before the blackout, which was enforced all through the war. Proms is short for promenade concerts, because in the original ones, the audience was allowed to promenade or stroll about in some areas during the actual concert. These days, I think it's fair to say it's the world's biggest classical music festival, eight weeks long every summer, a huge host of national and international musicians and orchestras, ending, of course, in the triumphant Patriot Fest known as the Last Night of the Proms. Just to give you a flavour, in a recent year there were 600,000 concertgoers over the eight weeks, one in ten of whom bought a ticket on the day for standing room only, at the absolute bargain price of £6. Probably gone up a little since 2017, but the idea of it being wonderful music at very low prices for everybody is really the idea behind the whole thing. And finally, finally then, let's pop along to the Albert Memorial, that massive construction on the edge of Kensington Gardens, put up in 1875 to honour Prince Albert, commissioned, of course, by Victoria, paid for by public subscription. In today's money, it would have cost £10 million. And if you like that sort of thing, it is truly splendid. A much larger-than-life Albert sits under a canopy, holding a catalogue for the Great Exhibition. His statue's covered in gold leaf. There's a huge spire, I think it's 180 feet high, decorated with marble and semi-precious stones. There are 169 life-sized figures on the frieze around it, poets, artists, etc. I like the little terse two-word comment in the rough guide, which pointed out that they were, quote, all men. That's Victorian age for you. Perhaps I should leave the last sentence to the website description, which bills it as, quote, one of the grandest high Victorian Gothic extravaganzas anywhere. And yes, when you see it, I think you'll agree you can't argue with that. I do wonder, actually, whether the museums aren't a much more fitting memorial to Albert than the memorial itself. He was a highly intelligent, 
very academic man, passionately interested in all the sciences and arts and progress and the expansion of knowledge. Anyway, just a thought. A thought, in fact, on which to end our tour of Victoria and Albert's London. I hope you've enjoyed listening, perhaps picked up a few things you didn't know, maybe got the urge to go see for yourself at some point. I'll just mention briefly that from the next episode, we're starting a little bit of a literary phase. So next week, I'm going to Chaucer and Shakespeare's London, a little look at what life was like in the city in the days of each of them, respectively, and a wander around some of the bits of London where you can best remember them. So I hope you'll join me for that. And for the moment, thank you very much for listening today and goodbye. <laughs>